0: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Douglas Crabtree. He is the owner and operator with his wife, Dr. Anna Jones Crabtree, of Velikas Farms and Institute, north of Haver, Montana, just a few miles from the Canadian border. Their farm is a certified organic, Biologically diverse dryland farm that uniquely features between 15 to 20 organic grain, pulse, broadleaf, and oilseed crops. The farm was started in 2009 with 1,280 acres. It has grown to over 12,000 acres. Prior to farming full time, Mr. Crabtree was the organic certification program manager at the Montana State Department of Agriculture. He holds a bachelor's degree in agricultural economics from Purdue University and a master's in plant science from South Dakota State University. Mr. Crabtree is a member of the Montana Organic Association. He serves on the Organic Trade Association's advisory board and chairs the Montana Organic Advisory Board. He is previously a member of the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board, which is where we met, and in 2014, he received the prestigious Organic Trade Association's Organic Farmer of the Year. Welcome, Doug.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, Doug, you have been described as an articulate organic visionary, and I want to know how you came to adopt organic farming practices especially since you grew up on a quote unquote conventional farm in Ohio.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Melinda. Uh dig into the past, I I think it was first, you know, out of necessity. The farm I grew up on and that my family owned and managed ceased to exist in the 1980s farm crisis. And uh while I I no longer had that to return to. I uh, I was not cured of the disease that farming is. So my motivation, you know, from a very early age was to find a better way to practice agriculture and I think I I had embedded in my my psyche, if you will, that what passes as conventional is clearly not acceptable or does not work. So the, the default in my mind becomes do something different because what is what is normal or conventional is is not successful. So it's, it's definitely a, a perspective and I'm not gonna suggest this has been conscious all along, but certainly something that has grown in me that just question everything and if in doubt, do different
0: well I think that the term conventional farming which has been accepted in our society as norm in our culture. You have described that more appropriately as industrial, chemical, and input dependent and or low value farming. Tell me how you came to that conclusion.
1: Well, you've obviously heard me climb on one of my soapboxes. I just feel like we've practiced agriculture for, you know, as a species, for ten to 15,000 years, depending on who's counting. And we've only had that agriculture dependent on off-farm inputs and, uh, and various sorts of poisons as part of that package since World War II. So 60 some odd years, we've practiced it in the fashion that it is largely practiced today. And it just seems like 60 compared to 10,000 or more, calling what what is now normal, conventional, is is an act of hubris.
0: Right. Where did you first learn about organic farming?
1: Well, certainly not from either of the universities and agricultural training institutions I, uh, I attended. I often bring up in conversation that I, I find it remarkable that I completed my degree in agricultural economics with an emphasis on farm management, And in the five years it took me to do that, I don't recall ever hearing the term organic farming even mentioned at, at, you know, one of the leading land grant institutions in our nation. So I was completely ignorant coming there from, but I did have this, as I mentioned before, this strong idea that something different had to be because what was conventional simply wasn't. Working and perhaps more personally important, was not possible to reenter as a a farmer without a farm right so you know I spent a lot of time you know after after that degree program trying to farm and looking for opportunities there but but also exploring what is there that is alternative and one of the little sort of niche systems that I I was very drawn to was something called ridge tillage. It's a, a very kind of specific system of row crop production that relies on creating ridges or, or habitats, if you will, for row crops that are maintained year to year as part of the tillage or, or alternative tillage regime. So. In exploring that system, I went to conferences of its adherents and come to find out that many of them had gone what seemed to be to be a a large next step and became organic. And asking some of them, "Well, what is that and why?" The answers ranged from, "Well, if if in, in ridge tillage, one of the one of the practices is you you spray or treat." only a portion of the of the soil surface where the crop grows and not the remainder. So you reduce your inputs physically in that regard. But then they said, well, we, we discovered that if we could reduce them by half or more, we wanted to see if we could just reduce them altogether, eliminate them. And then once we had proved we could do that, there's this this niche market that now exists for something called organic, where you can sell your crops for higher prices if you avoid use of these products. And, you know, this was in the somewhat early stages of the development of an organic market and uh, certainly of organic standards across the country and various places. So uh, that was probably my first introduction to the concept of organic farming And it was really intriguing, honestly, mostly the economic part at first, but it launched me on on a lifetime of further exploration.
0: Yeah, I've met quite a few farmers who also say that they first entered organic farming for the economic rewards, but after they were involved in it, they saw so many benefits that they didn't ever want to go back. So yeah, I understand what you're saying. Well, Doug, I have had the pleasure and privilege of visiting your farm and it's the first time really that I've experienced wheat country. You know, I've I grew up on the East Coast, I live in the Midwest and traveling to see where my wheat comes from was quite eye-opening and the contrast of your farm to those surrounding you was quite dramatic. I saw a monoculture of wheat versus a truly biodiverse farm, which is what you have. Tell me, what is it that keeps farmers using a system, the monoculture system that is not helping climate change, that is not producing the healthiest food possible, and that is not protecting our environment? What keeps those farmers in that rut?
1: Well, that's a, a billion-dollar question, as it were. I hazard to speculate because I think there are probably as many reasons as there are farmers. But because you ask, I guess I'll I'll try to tread into that water. I'm I'm always a little hesitant to to be a, a critic of any other farmers' methods or motivations. I don't intend to be evangelical. That said, I think on the whole, the way we practice agriculture is damaging, not the least of which is to the farmers themselves. So I, I think, you know, your your question was why? Why do people keep doing something that, that appears to many of us to be counter to their own interests? So I think there there are two, maybe three primary motivations. First of all is the basic what would I say the a reluctance to change or to be different. You know humans by nature are creatures of habit and uh, tend to to not like to to stick out or being seen as different and it's hard to do something that is different and the more different the more radical perhaps the more challenging that that can be. And then there's the the, the idea of tradition the vast majority of farms in this region, for certain, and I think in our country as a whole, are descendants of of their family of you know generations of farming, and much of what they practise is is learned from their parents and the parents before them so it's it's self reinforcing. And I don't mean that to lay all the blame on our ancestors, but, uh, you, you know, some of the external forces have been even greater in the past than they are now, perhaps. Uh, but for whatever reason, we have a, a system of agriculture that is that is overly simplified. And I'll just say what I observe here in this region is there are a number of farms that I see and and know at least enough to understand that have, you know, on their crop operation, at least have never grown anything other than wheat and likely their parents or, you know, who managed the farm, the previous generation, never grew anything other than wheat and perhaps even further than that, you know, so multiple generations where that's all that you've ever done, you know, that's a hard habit to break. So. So there's there's a couple things that are internal, and and then I think perhaps the largest factor is the the subsidy and support quote unquote support structure that we as farmers are embedded in, and you know the the longer I'm in this business, the more I understand how how powerful that force is that you know, farmers, we pride ourselves on being independent and and working for market. You know, and I like to think as as an alternative, you know, an organic producer and one that that thinks outside the box, you know, I want to be even more so. I'm I'm in a very, very real way embarrassed to admit how dependent even this farm is on subsidies. Uh, You know, in the last, over the last five years, in three of those years, I believe, if you count conservation subsidies and direct crop subsidies and crop insurance subsidies, we, we've made more from that than we have from selling crops. And I try to extrapolate that based on my knowledge and understanding of the programs and say, okay, well, yeah, uh, that is that is bad. That's not how we want to function what would that look like if we were more like the, the more common systems? Well, it would look much worse because the subsidies in our current system are almost entirely based on the production of commodities. And the more of a specific commodity that is you know, most common in this region, that's wheat. The more wheat you grow, the higher level of subsidy you are, quote unquote, entitled to. So that is a huge driver of the kind of agriculture we practice, uh, the kind that is supported. So in in order to step outside of that, you have to relinquish some level of support. And when the very economic survival of the farm is dependent on that support, that's a, a scary proposition. and you know, most would say an unwise proposition. Right. So I'm sorry, that was a really long-winded answer, but um, I hope I got to some points that people can understand.
0: Absolutely. And it takes a brave person to be able to walk away from that system, which seems to have this guaranteed income, which, you know, who can deny that we need that?
1: Well, I think... As a a critic of farm policy writ large, I want to say the basic problem is we support commodities and the production of these things called commodities, which, you know, by definition, that's that's something that's the same as all the rest of it. (laughs) Uh, It's not a very good definition, but, you know, we support wheat and corn and soybeans and rice and having as much of those for as low a price as we possibly can. Or as low a cost.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into FoodSleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Mr. Doug Crabtree. He is the owner and operator with his wife, Anna Jones Crabtree, of Velikas Farms and Institute north of Haver, Montana. Doug, again, I mentioned earlier that I have visited your beautiful farm, and it is so remarkable, but it is a brittle environment and climate change is not making it any better. It's harsh. And I wonder if you can describe a little bit for our listeners what the environment is like and some of the challenges you face with climate change.
1: Sure. Well, we farm uh, north central Montana, part of the northern Great Plains. Part of our farm is right against the Canadian border. So just locationally that gives you an idea this region receives on average 11 inches plus or minus some decimals of precipitation per year a desert is defined as 10 inches or less so we're very close to you know to the the possibility of growing crops and the only way that has worked traditionally is the precipitation that we do get has generally come at the perfect time to support growing sort of annual grain primarily but but annual crops you know our our wettest month is June, next wettest is May, and then there's a a, a spike of precipitation in in September. Uh, Those support seeding spring and and fall seeded crops, getting them established. And then we just hope we can hang on enough with either stored moisture or or, uh, rains coming at the right time through the rest of the season. So, as you said, inherently that is brittle. You know, any change to either the amount or the timing of, of those precipitation events kind of pushes us over the edge. From uh, marginal to sub marginal, so we're, we're kind of on the cutting edge. I like to think of climate change, and one of the assumptions that I made, I think I think Anna helped me think about this, but I won't I won't put any blame on her. But you know, we thought about climate change when we decided to farm here, and part of it was you know, our understanding at that time, and maybe still, is that climate change would lead to greater variability, you know, around the norm, and uh, there would be more extremes. And we said, well, sure, there'll be, uh, that, that means there might be more heat and more drought, but there could also be, or should also be, times of of greater precipitation. To my uh <laughs> Surprise on one hand, and chagrin for certain. Uh, we have not experienced that. The only impact of climate change we have seen since we started farming and living here is less precipitation and precipitation at less predictable times and in smaller amounts. You know, I, I hear and read and see a lot about these massive you know, high volume rain or snow events. And, uh, no, what, what we've gotten are a whole lot of insignificant precipitation events where it, it rains or snows so little that it never reaches a crop root that it evaporates or transpires prior to, to getting into the, the plants usable zone. And that's, that's something I really didn't anticipate, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so far only one direction but we remain help, hopeful.
0: Right. Well, you and Anna have been innovative and creative in trying to capture water and protect your soil. And I think that again is another remarkable feature of your land. And I suspect that while your neighbors who are involved in monoculture wheat farming they may not survive as well as you who have crop strips and snow fences and shrub strips so that you are capturing more snow, therefore water, and you are building soil. I'm assuming that that is going to work in your favor.
1: Well, we're assuming that also. Um, Our farm system really is is based on sort of three principal beliefs or or motivations. First and foremost, we try to model nature. We look at what the natural world demonstrates as as the model for what we should strive to be. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what does what does this plains ecosystem look like, or what would it look like, what did it look like prior to you know, human intervention? And how can we learn from that to model our agroecosystem on the native or the natural ecosystem? A related concept, but one that I believe deserves call out, is to maximize diversity. When you look at nature, the first thing you should see is that there is no monoculture in nature. And the closer you look, the more diversity you find. And that's ubiquitous. You know, I'm much more familiar with this northern plains ecosystem than anywhere else, but I've studied enough to know that wherever you look to nature, you find the longer you look, more diversity. So we try to do that in in our cropping system, in our integration with livestock, in our uh, every way we can turn. How do we get more living things into the system and support the ones that that are there? Right. And the third concept is to strive toward being a self-sufficient organism if you will. We we think of the farm as a living thing and you know, it we're not there, we probably never will be there. You know, we're still bringing in fuel and inoculant and seeds to some extent, but our goal is to make this a closed loop system that produces you know what is necessary, and and makes us as little dependent on outside inputs as we can possibly be.
0: Mm. You also seem to be growing community in your region, inviting people to the farm, participating in the farm. The Velikas Institute bringing in artists in residence, apprenticeships. Tell me a little bit about that, and how might people get in touch with you if they want to experience your farm firsthand.
1: Well, first I'll say a lot of that work is is much more Anna's brainchild and passion, not that I'm not supportive, I'm just not as creative and uh, but but we do share a belief that agriculture in general and the northern plains in particular have been depopulated far beyond what is healthy, that, you know, it's another one of those things that's hard to understand if you haven't seen it, but, but you're having been here, you've, you've gathered a bit of what this, this countryside looks like. And it is uh, by definition, a frontier our County, which means there are fewer than five people per square foot or square mile, excuse me. And that counts the town's, so if you took the towns out, you know, the population here is a rounding error from zero. And there are fewer people living on this land than there have ever been. Like there, There were more humans here prior to settlement than there are now. So, you know, it's really hard to conceive that if you live almost anywhere else. But we've really taken the people out or the people have, have chosen to leave depending on your perspective. So one of our motivations is to try to reverse that trend. We feel like, well, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a truth that farming is a, a necessary part of society and that farming should be a community activity and, and based on community and to to do it you know we need more hands and perhaps more importantly more brains on the land, and we've we've suffered in rural communities with large. And here's a great example of it: just a a drain. So we're we're trying to do anything we can to to reverse that and bring more people back. Mm.
0: Doug, you and I both served on a policy committee on the Organic Farming Research Foundation board, and so you are so well-suited to talk about farm policy. What would you change in farm policy to make it so that there were more people on the land and we had more nutritious food with less chemical inputs? What needs to change from a farm policy perspective?
1: Um, I think if I could think of, of one sort of stroke of, of pen or keyboard, let's remove the word commodity from any policy or uh, defining document within agriculture or within USDA. It's just a horrible term. And everything that comes out of that is bad for agriculture. So if we could take, take commodity out and then put the resources that are now being being used to support production of commodities to support farmers and farms and agricultural ecosystems. And uh, I believe wholeheartedly you could do it. This could be done by our society, by our nation at a fraction of the cost of what we're doing now and do Remarkably more good to support, you know, healthy food, healthy uh, climate, healthy ecosystems, all of which are in, intertwined, and just kind of reverse the the mistakes we've made in in the last fifty to sixty years of of ag policy,
0: and to have healthier people at the end of the day. I might add,
1: yeah, it, it's all related, right? What is uh, is it Rodale's? Thing, you know, healthy soil, healthy animals, healthy people, they've got that one right. Exactly. And our policy does not recognize that in any meaningful way.
0: It's so unfortunate. Doug, our time is up. And I want to, of course, thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest. Mr. Doug Crabtree. He is the owner and operator with his wife, Dr. Anna Jones Crabtree of Velikas Farms and Institute, just north of Haver, Montana. And I will provide a link, Doug, to your farm and to the Institute so that people can get a vision of what could be on this beautiful and unique part of our country. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you. And, uh, uh, we we welcome visitors <laughs> uh, the more people that that see see what we're doing here i think i think the more understanding there can be
0: i agree thank you